You're experiencing performance anxiety with me, Mark Shea. This week, we feature legendary producer Bob Rock. And by we, I mean me and my special co-host Jordan Zetterosny from Blink of the Star. Bob has produced albums for everyone from Metallica and Motley Crue to Sarah McLaughlin and Michael Buble. Jordan and I discuss his transition from music to producer with him. We get some great untold stories and some behind-the-scene moments from Bob. And we also talk about how his job as a producer has changed throughout the years. Here's Bob Rock. Hi, this is Bob Rock. I, I make records. This is Performance Anxiety, I think. Great guys. Cheers. That's it. Good. I love talking about music, that's for sure. All right. Well, I love cool. finding out stuff about music, which is why I love talking to guys like you and Jordan. Cool. Cheers. You're at the warehouse right now, right? Yeah. Any, any project you're working on that you can tell us a little bit about? Um, well, in 1979, I did a band called The Dills, and they were from San Francisco, Chip and Tony Kinman. Um, and I did a, a three-song EP that has become kind of an underground kind of like hit, so to speak, okay. of that time. And um, I was very proud of that because they were so different from the Vancouver punk scene. They're all country. They ended up being a band called uh, Rank and File and and then uh, Cowboy Nation, etc. And okay. anyway, uh, Chip told me about, I guess about a month ago, and Tony, the bass, his brother, bass player, had passed away. Oh. And so we, uh, uh, he said he wanted to re-record one of the songs with... Uh, a guy named Mac, uh, kind of a country singer for Back East, and wanted to do that uh, for uh, Tony's wife, just to try and get her some money. Oh, okay. So, and when Chip called me, and uh, I had to come and do a bit of work here, um, so we lined it up, and, and uh, we ended up cutting the song with the original drummer that played on it, um, uh, Ziggy. No, not Ziggy. Zippy, yeah, Zippy Pinhead. Sorry, <laughs> too, but Zippy Pinhead, and then Mary Jo Kopechny, the bass player from the Modernette, she played bass, and then Chip. Oh, so and and this and uh, Mac. So it was kind of going back in time, and some people from the Pointed Sticks and other bands came, and we all sang, blah blah blah. It was Mary, really cool. Mary Jo Kopechny. Uh, wow. Yeah. What an unfortunate name. Yeah. Well, it was Jeez. a punk name. Man, great, great, uh, a great band that uh, one of the big songs was Barbara and Buck Cherry is actually John Armstrong. He's uh, a great writer. He writes books. He's a fantastic writer. Okay. And wrote great songs. His his stage name was Buck Cherry. Ah, okay, okay. Nice. So uh, let's let's start kind of at the beginning. You're growing up in Canada. What is the very first concert you ever saw? Well, the first first concert I saw was the Beach Boys in Victoria. Oh, wow. Man, surf music in in Canada. What year was that? Oh, God, I I don't know. I was pretty young, but, um, you know, I liked the Beach Boys uh, when I was younger. Um, and Dennis was, Dennis Wilson was playing drums. The one that I saw. Oh, wow. He played very long after that. Yeah. But, yeah. But, uh, 
you know, there's a lot of kind of big concert things for me that changed a lot. Uh, actually, I was just talking, Chip uh, Kinman, we're kind of the same age, and we were talking about uh, some of the bands that influenced why we started playing, I guess, what you would call punk music. I was in bands, blues bands with Paul Hyde uh, when we were growing up. We, lo- we loved English, what I call English blues. Right. Basically, the blues that went through Bud Zeppelin, the Stones and everything. Oh, yeah. You know, and so we, as a band, used to, uh, we played the Purple Onion and the Club Tango and played blues songs. And we learned about the older blues guys through those people, you know, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, all the bands. And so anyway, and it's oddly enough. So he's the same age. And then why I asked him, I said, why did you, what was the first punk thing that you noticed that made you want to play? And he said the first Ramones album, which was of course really big and ahead of its time. Yeah. You know, that was, but I told him that actually Paul and I in Vancouver, we came over from Victoria to see the raw power tour, which is, Oh uh, wow. It's infamous. Yeah. We saw it at a, at a, uh, uh, what would it be called? Uh, you know, what is it when transvestites dress up basically and do shows? <laughs> you know, oh. they do cross tunes. I forget what it's called. There's a certain name for it all. I don't know. I'm thinking drag race, but that might be something else. Yeah, it was kind of that. It was <laughs> the Pender Ballroom. They used to have, that's what they did. They had drag queens okay. doing the show. Iggy played that place. Oh, so. <laughs> man. <laughs> To me, that was the first, that was the beginnings of punk. There was a lot of bands that I loved, and he, he was saying this, we had the same influences, like coming out of Bowie and the New York Dolls and all the, those kind of bands led into, uh, led into basically the, the, the beginnings of punk. Yeah. Uh, a great magazine from New York called Rock Scene and Cream mm-hmm. started oh. putting pictures to the Ramones and then. I was already into the dolls, but you know. Oh, gosh, anyway, yeah. So we talked about all that, and but the raw power things show that we saw Paul and I came, and I'd never been moved at a concert more than that ever. Is you that, know, just that move you to well, put yeah, on women's clothing or anything at any time, or the Panda Ballroom had this mural, and I was banging on the wall. I was so pumped. Oh wow! <laughs> so we had to change where we were standing. I didn't want to get kicked out. Isn't <laughs> I just never seen anything that just raw and it's the beginnings of a punk. The raw power album is kind of a punk album. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So that, that didn't uh, inspire you to dress up like in women's clothing or anything or. No. Okay. I mean, well, I grew, you know, like really the biggest, um, you may know that, that Mick Ronson produced two of the Paolo's albums and yeah, me, he was, Probably, well, he was my biggest muse. Just as a, as a guy growing up, I mean, I had a picture of Play Don't Worry on my wall of Ronson when I was, you know, when it came out. And Bowie was probably the biggest impact. Glam, basically. English music has always been my influence. Anyway, um, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. So... <laughs> Concerts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As as, oh, see, this is the thing. As soon as I start talking about that period, I just go off. It's amazing. You just answered about six of my questions. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, that monologue right there. Yeah. That whole thing was so big for me. 
so big for me. But the great thing about punk and and, you know, there was like Paul and I, you know, uh, we kind of went our separate ways and we ended up actually back in Vancouver. I I came over to get my job at Little Mountain, which was 1976. And um, he came over. He, he was in Toronto. Uh, and he was working in a bar there. And he brought back a great record, the Rough Trade record that was directed disc. Oh, Birds yeah. of a Fire and Take Me. Great, incredible song. Okay. Um, anyway, he brought that back. And, uh, you know, we started hanging together. And then when punk music broke, it was like we didn't have to play like Boston and all the bands the at the time. So we could actually write a song. So we wrote a song together. China Boys, that was the first song we wrote together. And uh, we put out a single and we got oh, wow. signed with one song. <laughs> wow. <It was> hilarious. <laughs> IRS Records said, signed us, and they said, we want you to do an EP. You got more songs. And we said, oh, yeah, we got lots of songs. We had none. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I think we the B-side in about four minutes. Oh, jeez. Amazing. Well, no. I just want some noise. But anyway, so cut to the chase. Yeah, just it allowed us to be able to start writing songs and perform because we were very raw and, you know, we didn't know how to put together songs. I was lucky working at a studio. I learned about arrangements and with all the bands and even the jingles that I did and stuff. You just learn mm -hmm. about music and how to arrange things and put things in place. So. Everything yeah. just kind of pulled next, you know? What got you through the door uh, coming into the studio in 1976? Like, uh, did you take some training and then? Well, I was working in construction and uh, I heard on the radio, probably Fox radio, that there was a course being offered in Vancouver for six weeks. One, one day, either Friday or Saturday, or Saturday, Sunday for six weeks. And I just heard that I, it was like, it was perfect for me. I just went, I asked my parents, you know, could I, could I go to this school? And they said, yeah. And they, they paid for it. And through the job, it was like, you know, there's recording courses now, but through that, going to that course, I should say, um, uh, the Saturday class I did and a guy that ended up working at Little Mountain as well, Ron Obvious. Um, we both were in the class and that was teaching us, Roger, Monk, um, basically said he chose me, um, uh, because I was the guy that wasn't scared to take a chance. It was always like when said, who wants to try? It was me. Mm -hmm. He didn't know what I was doing. It was like, I mean, I was so into recording, um, you know, be, I'm, I'm going off a bit here, but to me, it was like, the um, like I remember 13, 14, it was always like, why do I like the intro to All Right Now? Why do mm -hmm. I sound so honky tonk woman? Why is that different from all the other Stone stuff previous, you know? And then mm -hmm. even like Beach Boys, it was good vibrations. Oh. You know, they had Beach Boys were kind of this surf thing, but good vibrations came out. And I'm just going, I don't know what is going on here. So your brain wanted to sort of pick it apart and put it back together again. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. And then really the big thing when I went, I'm going to do this was, well, you know, as a guitar player and as a musician, it was Keith Richards and, you know, 
the three guys for me with Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page. So, oh, yeah. but then the record that made me say, I got to learn how to do this was Queen 2, which is oh, an yeah. incredible album. March of the Black. I bought yeah. that. The big Queen fan. I bought that and I went, I just didn't. I just blew my mind. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Know, so that that's when. And so this this program happened and Roger picked me and then Rod, uh, Ron Obvious and we both got jobs. I'll tell you a funny story, but I went for my interview. It was December of 76. I came over and I was sitting in the lobby and I was waiting for my interview and the door kind of just slammed open and this big tall guy with a beard had a, had like a big fur coat on, you know, kind of like a pimp coat. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and he just, just barged in the door and, and went back to the studio and it was like, Oh my God, who is that? And the reception said, that's Bruce Allen. Well, <laughs> so the day I got my job is the guy that has managed me for 40 years. Wow. Amazing. That's and of course, so cool. Yeah, it, it is pretty amazing. You know, it was serendipitous, definitely. So, and he was going in to see BTO that were there. I'll tell you another oh, cool. thing about studios. When I was, I was worked in a cardboard box, box factory, Paul and I, because we couldn't get jobs out on the West Coast. And I went, I phoned up a recording studio in Winnipeg. And I, and I went, uh, they said, you can come down and maybe we'll show you. I, I got there at about 10 o'clock in the morning and I stayed till eight o'clock at night in the lobby and I never got to see the studio. Oh. They wouldn't let me see the studio. Wow. I waited wow. for like, what's that? Like almost like 16 hours. And Jeez. I was here in the, and they would not let me, sh- not show me the studio. But that just <laughs> made me, it made, it was more of a mystery by that experience. It was just like, I got to get into a studio. So that was even more motivation for you then. Oh yeah. Oh man. It it was really just like, fuck you. I'm going to be, I'm going to do this. (laughs) So at that time you, now you're, you're recording and producing the payolas. uh, And did you do that out of necessity uh, or did it, was it just to have control over the sound of the band? No, not at all. I mean, I don't. You, there, there, there's no method to the madness that happened. It, it's just I got a job at Little Mountain. Paul ended up there. We were, you know, I mean, I met Paul when when we were 16. He came from England, so I had to get to know him because of the English thing with me. Um, and we did love the same kind of music, you know, blues and all the same bands and everything. Uh, we ended up both in Vancouver and. Uh, one of the things with, because uh, we did, I did, starting out, you, you start doing tape copies, right? Okay. And just cleaning and set, set ups and assistant. And then you kind of work, you start doing jingles. And jingles were, you know, they were commercials, but they were like, it was like making a record every day, you know, because when mm-hmm. I started doing them, you made a, a one minute song, you know, you recorded a, recorded a live band, live singers. You did that all by one o'clock and then you mixed it and then, it went out. Wow. And so even though it was, and it was mono, but you know, that's how I learned how to be an engineer. And then slowly when punk broke, nobody, none of the other studios in town wanted the punks, you know, but we said, (laughs) you'll take them. Half of them. And I got Ron obviously had half and I got half and, and that was really, 
you know, the start of about production and engineering, making records. And that's how I got my first gig, real gig with Bruce Fairburn was uh, people were talking about what we had done, uh, Ron and I. And I did Prism, a Prism album mm-hmm. with Bruce. And then we started working together. So Bruce was the first mentor once he got in there, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think what it was is that the other engineers were, you know, that period of time in the late 70s. Like, for instance, they Little Mountain had nothing but uh, uh, Neumann mics. They had no dynamic microphones. I think an RE20. You know, so and wow. I'm going like, but all the pictures I see people have, you know, like 50s and 421s. Why don't we have it? So I bought it. I brought the first Sure microphone into Little Mountain. And it was just, wow. yeah, it was like, so what I'm saying is that Bruce was working at Mushroom and there was great engineers there, um, but he wanted it to be different than that because that was kind of the only place. So he gave me a shot. And, you know, really he... He, and then he believed in me. So, you know, I own that. That was big for me, you know, and we, but I think it was like, in terms of a mentor, he, there's a lot of wonderful things above Bruce, you know, but in terms of, you know, he needed an engineer. He wasn't, he didn't, wasn't a sonic guy. So he needed an engineer, you know, so he had to find somebody that could, could get his sounds. Right. And he wanted something different than what he was getting before. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, I know. Uh, I know Jordan has a, a a really cool concert experience with. Uh, well, we were just talking about first concerts, and uh, the first concert that I saw, um, it was 1987. I was 13 years old. It was uh, Canada Day at Lansdowne Park, and it was uh, three band bill, Rock and Hyde, Tom Cochran, Red Rider, and Brian Adams was headlining. Wow. And yeah, and and uh, my brother was supposed to come with me. He got ill, and uh, so I went by myself. My parents let me go, and uh, I ended up about yeah, I ended up about twelve feet in front of you. <laughs> so my first real sort of like impression of seeing uh, rock happen in a in a proper context. I'd been to craft fairs and stuff, but was. Uh, was you and I don't even remember what Paul Hyde was wearing because there was something about um, uh, you had a Telecaster, faded ripped jeans, white shirt, open generously to the chest. Desert <laughs> boots. There was something about that that you know that you guys closed with eyes of a stranger and the telly, and I could hear the amp coming off the stage too, so it was really nice. chorus pedal delay and i think sunset was starting just as you guys were finishing and 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 that song Um, so yeah that uh, that that was my first concert memory man cool but uh, you know that all the you know red rider were great and brian's awesome yeah that was a great show i remember it well in keeping with the canada theme of first concerts my first concert was rush i don't know if that means anything but that's lucky you Presto yeah. tour, you know, so. <laughs> but speaking of eyes of a stranger, I've told the story a couple times this week for some odd reason. So I will tell you, you know, a lot of people have asked me, well, where did it come from? And, uh, you know, the, the whole 
punk scene when we made our first album there's a splash of reggae and the reggae was always something that Paul and I liked and then when you know the clash included reggae with them it was like this whole thing came from England and it was almost like the blues with the early English bands reggae was just great we we're already into it and Bob Marley uh, put out an album after our first album called Natty Dread and and because of the uh i've actually got a check uh for china boys i got like my first writing check right and i made mm-hmm. a promise to myself that whatever i did to work was you know for to support myself i would always that check i would always put that into music i'd either buy a guitar or an amp or a drum machine something to inspire me and i bought the drum machine that's on natty dread i found out I asked people, what kind of machine is that? And it's CR78. And so I bought that and I brought it home and I tried to mimic Natty Dread. So Uh, I I wrote the bass line to that drum machine. And then then from that, Chris Taylor, who is the drummer, he worked at Little Mountain. So I recorded over a Hudson's Bay commercial and we did a demo at the end of the day. He played drums, I played bass, and then I overdubbed the guitars. And then I sent that to Paul, and he wrote the song. But anyway, wow. so point being, it was like there's, there's a lot of these, these things that, that you, when you're young, you know, just changes everything. That was, and it's just amazing that Chris Taylor was actually the drummer. Our first drummer was, was a good drummer, but Chris could actually play to the drum machine. Mm. never oh, wow. see anybody do that right because that's the first time he ever did it and if you listen wow i mean there's no pro tools involved he just played to the drum machine oh wow that's crazy yeah. that's crazy. Some, that's some awesome timing um yeah <laughs> so speaking of so, recording that you don't yeah. use tape anymore do you you've, you've gone totally digital and you've been all digital for a while haven't you well yeah the um, you got to remember, I started in 1976. Right. Okay, so 1976, we had at Little Mountain, we had an Eve console, which what I grew up on, thank God. And <laughs> as it's uh, the console that means is one of the ones that I feel most comfortable with. Um, we had a Scully tape machine, and and those were uh, American-made tape machines, but they didn't really have what some of the more expensive ones like Studer's had. So the thing is, is that, and the Neve has a lot of transformers. So when we recorded something, we basically, for playback, we used to EQ on playback to make it sound good. Okay. Because we lost so much in the tape. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, you follow? I think, yeah. Now, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I know so Jordan does. Yeah. And <laughs> so, the, so, it was always the transition to digital was all about uh, was wasn't like I want to do this because it's new. Like I I moved to digital very slowly because first Pro Tools sounded like shit. Yeah. Until until it was Pro Tools HD, it was we just did it to use to do samples and uh-huh. spin vocals. Spin, by the way, you know what spinning is? I don't. Okay, it's it's basically cut and paste, right? You can move okay. things around. But we used to like, uh, you'd spin the capstan on a tape machine and 
hit uh, hit play and you put in backgrounds. You lay it in on a tape machine. Oh, okay, okay, that, that makes sense. sense to you. That makes sense it's to me. Yeah, like using a sampler, but we used to do it by tape. Wow, that sounds yeah, like that's, that sounds tedious. So, oh fuck yeah! <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think the black album was fourteen months. We could have done it in five months. Oh god, mm-hmm. man. Well, <laughs> but. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, I got off subject again. No, 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 no. Actually, no, that's fascinating. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff I want to know. So this, this is why I, I, I do this whole show. What was the first project you went did did digital? And were you were you, did you ever did, did you ever end up doing a real project? Um, you know, using sixteen bit, like the eight eight eights or anything like that. No. Yeah. It wasn't until HD that I made the move because. We actually yeah. went to Sony Digital because it sounded better than Pro Tools. So we learned how to use two Sony Digital machines and, you know, sync them up and do everything we were doing on tape. But you see, mm-hmm. like the big the big thing is I bought a Sony 24 track when I did the Black album uh, about halfway through. Because when we did the drum edits, we were basically doing what we do in Pro Tools now. We put things in time. So, But we were actually taking tape out to put things in time. And actually adding tape in to put things in time. So there was three, four hundred edits in every song. God, jeez. Right? And by the time we put it together, Randy Staub and I, you know, basically, Randy didn't edit much before the Black Album. I had edited a lot because I did jingles, right? And I said, I'm not going to fucking do that because (laughs) I keep track of all this shit. So, Yeah. yeah. So he became very good at it. And... But the problem was, is that there was no way we were going to be able to play that tape back for very long. So instead of transferring it to analog, we, I bought a machine and we just put it on the 24 track. And that's from there it was like archived digitally. And it's not a, a digital tape machine. Yeah. A digital tape machine. Mm-hmm. At the time it was, it wasn't 24 bit. It was, it was 16 bit 441, but mm-hmm. it still sounded good. Mm-hmm better than Pro Tools or anything else. So, so since, yeah. since you brought up the Black Album, I, I don't want to you know, your, your involvement with Metallica is, is really well documented. So I don't want to spend tons and tons of time on it. Um, but I do have a few questions. Uh, how did were you approached by Metallica to do the Black Album? And, and did they tell you what, what work you had done previously that made them want to have you produce their album? Well, I actually, a couple things. So the cult did the justice tour with a backup band. So okay. I had just done Spike Temple. So I, in Vancouver, you know, I had bought justice, you know, and there was bazillions of skaters with Metallica t-shirts. So, you know, there's something got to be something about them. Right. So I bought right. the justice and I'd like one because they just started to get airplay with one. And I went, okay, you know, this is, this is good, but, there's no bottom. There's like, yeah. And then I went to see, I went to see the cult in Vancouver and I stayed for Metallica. And that's when I went, Oh, you know, I get it. And in other words, it, I got it there, but their records don't sound like they sound live. There was all this weight and, and everything. So I just put that in the back of my mind. Um, okay. So then I did, after Sonic Temple, I did uh, Dr. Fieldit. Right. 
Okay, so um, Molly Cruz, Doctor Feelgood album. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So on that album, Tommy was is and still is into like rap and that that uh, hype bottom end. So really, you know, it was a question of where I was sonically and even as a producer, I was learning more about how to produce records but really how to handle all the personalities and just general there's a lot more to production than just music to be quite honest you got to handle the personalities you got to handle the record company you have to move it forward there's all these other things that go along with it so uh but anyway the thing is is that what i found is like um, guys that pushed me at that point for one was ian asbury and billy but mainly ian you know, it was on my case, right? Okay. And like even Paul Dean with Loverboy, he was like really on my case. And uh, so, you know, not in a nasty way, just like pushing me. Okay. Right? And, and Tommy Lee pushed me. He says, you know, he called me Rockhead. So everybody <laughs> called me Rockhead. So they, you know, say he just go like uh, Rockhead. He tapped my shoulder. He goes, let me get some more bottom on the deck. And I'm going like, sure. <laughs> No, but I had to, I had to, I had to figure out how to do it. So it sounded good. So, uh, at that time we used to put drum samples from having a Lynn drum machine that we like Prince did. You could put a dial on a Lynn machine. You could dial all the samples down. Okay. So we got this, we got a, a, uh, an AMS digital delay and that was the first sample. So we used to trigger drum samples, but then we figured out that you could actually drop the pitch. Oh, okay. 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 So I dropped the pit on the kick and got subs that I could never get miking. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. So that's part of the sound. The other thing is, is like, um, they didn't have like, uh, what are called like the Yamaha speakers for subs on kick drums. Right. Um, and Tommy, he was kind of okay, but uh, I had seen them. I went to see them live, and I sat on a drum kit. It's literally, I hit the kick drum, and I thought my kidneys fell out. I mean, <laughs> when he plays, it was just unbelievable. So we started talking about that, and I said, "Well, why don't we just why don't we just put subs by the drums, so you feel played like you like you feel?" And of course, everybody said, "You can't do that." And I said, well, I'm going to do that. I want Tommy to be comfortable and be psyched, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so we put subs behind the drums. And wow. what I did is I fed the kick drum into, really into the drum kit and the toms into the drum kit. And it filled up the room with subs. So all the, the, the room mics, the whole drums, there's this weight to that. Mm. And then he tuned the sample and the kick. And that's yeah. how that whole bottom shaped okay okay so by doing that him pushing me you know you 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 have to find a way to work to make them happy that's what it's all about it wasn't my album it was their album i did what they wanted i was lucky enough that i'd become an engineer and i had learned how to write songs with paul so that's what i brought to them you know i could help them when they had a problem with the song i could say you know go here Right. You know, I helped Mickey learn how to play bass, basically. <laughs> and he would tell you that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, he would tell you that. He told me the first day in the studio, he said, by the way, 
don't think I've ever played on a Molitor album. <laughs> well, you just answered one of the he questions that I had for you later. That's his guy that produced them. I'm sorry. He's a great guy. Uh, Tom? Tom Worman? Yeah. They got him because of Cheap Trick. But anyway, he yeah, said, yeah. I'm sure I left the studio and somebody else came in and played it. <laughs> anyway. um, so, so Metallica. Yeah, basically, what happened with Metallica? There was uh, they heard the Kingdom Come album, they heard the Cult album, and I did a band, a Danish band called Electric Boys, and then they heard Motley. I remember the Electric never, Boys. Yeah, they would never ever admit that they, they like Motley, but they loved the way it sounded. <laughs> They like the bottom end and they were ready for that. Hey, they, they were just going like, you know, so they said, would you mix our next album? And I said, no, but I'll produce it. There <laughs> you go. That, was, that was pretty cocky. Right? So <laughs> uh-huh. Didn't hear from anything. And then Bruce said they called and they came up to Vancouver to visit. And they brought a cassette tape of all the demos that they had. And we just talked. And, and as soon as I heard Sabbath True... I went, I can do this. I know what to do in my head, you know, and, and it was different because, you know, a lot of people about the Black Album, they think I changed them, but really I didn't. I just worked with them to, to find, to get what they wanted. Right. So like Sabatrue was Sabatrue. Uh, I mean, they were all, they weren't finished, but. The ideas were there. They slowed it down. They made it simple. Right. You know? So with they, the didn't most- know, they, didn't know, they didn't know how to do that. You know, they didn't know. <laughs> how to do that. So and the other yeah. thing, they never played in the room together. Oh, really? They recorded James to a click and then Lars overdub to that. And then, then they did the vocals and then they did the bass and then Kirk came in the last two weeks and played the solos. So they never wow. played in a studio together ever. Oh, wow. and that's, I said, that. but that's how I make records. And I said, so if I'm doing this, you're all playing at the same time. See, they that- were so mad, <laughs> <laughs> but, there's, but it all works out, you know, and you got to remember that, you know, bands, when they start out, they, you know, like most bands make like two albums. That's their whole experience in a studio. I probably made 25 albums and they've made four. It's not that that doesn't make me wiser. It's just, I've gone through the process and they only knew, um, uh, I got to get this right. Fleming Rasmussen. Yeah. Fleming. Yeah. They only knew Fleming. That's who they use. So the way he did records, that's how they did records. Uh, You follow me? yeah. 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 Yep. I'll tell you about Sabbath True. This 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 is funny. So we did pre-production. I was in in we rehearsed in the Bay Area. And, you know, we're going through everything, and I and you know, like Fair, when I put down the tempo, the key. You know, uh, now I don't use notes. I probably should, but <laughs> anyway. So I'm going through, and every you know, I do the tempo, and and uh, because you know, I, I kind of showed them. I said, well, these songs sound great at one tempo. You know, it's, you could say, call it the pocket or whatever, but I just, everything clicks at one tempo where, you know, it's, it's really important. That's where it feels the best. Okay. Um, 
So I did that, but I also put down the key. So six socks in, it's E, E, <laughs> E, E. <laughs> and so I'm going like, I finally go like, so everything's in E. And I said, why is it all in E? James looked at me and went, because it's the lowest note. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, so why does Van Halen and Black Sabbath and everybody, they tune down to D? Have you ever done that? No. <laughs> Even E flat. <laughs> and the next song was Sad But True. So they played Sad But True and stopped and went, holy fuck. <laughs> Fleming didn't figure that out. I was right. Luckily enough, I was just like, what? <laughs> right? Yeah. You laugh, but it's, it's like this. Oh, I could- no, it's a huge moment that was obvious to you and they were. Do you know who Steve Cropper is? Um, Steve yes, Cropper? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guitar player, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I played this. Yeah, I played this. I play every New Year's with all the guys that live on, that have houses on Maui, like Tyler and, and Pat Simmons and Michael McDonald. We oh, all wow. do this charity thing every New Year's, right? And it's a blast. I can't believe they let me play with them. It's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, so there's this Chef Gordon has this party because he puts it on the night before. And I went to that and I meet Steve Cropper and I'm going, this is fucking so cool. Oh, but yeah. there with my daughters and there's all the people that live there. And I see Steve Cropper all by himself. Nobody's talking to him. And I watched nobody talk to him for about an hour. What? I went, fuck it. So I went over and I talked to him for three hours. Oh. You know, we talked about studios and making records, but God. there was one thing that's so funny which is a lot about what i was just saying about that's all they'd learned so he said we were talking about elvis and he you know he played on some of the sun sessions and i said you play i thought scotty moore he says well scotty sometimes he always wanted to get sound so he wanted to be an engineer so he would get me to play in the studio because all we had was 10 foot guitar chords so we couldn't really Go into the control room and play guitar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, nobody thought to extend a guitar chord. Oh, wow. So Scotty Moore was engineering Steve Cropper playing his parts. Oh, my. I never knew that. I never oh heard God. that before. And I'm going like, are you like kidding me? <laughs> he says, no, it's true. Wow. That, that's what I mean. Like, they didn't know. Oh, yeah. Much like Metallica didn't know. That's the only experience. Um, and I'm not saying that I opened something great to them, but, but I only knew what I knew. Fleming wow. knew what he knew. That's what I knew. I knew that, mm-hmm. you know, when, uh, like, what had worked for me, well, if you go to Loverboy, there's only one guitar track on Loverboy. Um, on uh, ja- uh, uh, Slippery When Wet. Mm-hmm. And Newton, mm-hmm. It's only one guitar track. I got wow. one guitar. Wow. And I and those guys taught me that you can you know one guitar, couple keyboard parts, lead vocal, great song, great rhythm, done. Mm-hmm. Lover Boy was like five weeks. The two Lover Boy albums and and Slippery was six weeks total. Really? Yeah. Wow. God, it's such a composed album. It sounds like it it, it would have taken as long as a Metallica album took. No. Wow. No, but it's, it's, 
So, you know, so when I met Metallica, I said, this is how I know to make records. And it's like, well, why? And I said, well, like for one, it's like if you've got to change a part, you're hearing all the parts or the basic parts, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Like you hear kind of where it's about and you get a great feel because that's what they wanted. You know, they, they actually told me, they said after the justice, they wanted to play songs kind of like straighter. You know, okay. It, they they felt sometimes that they were playing algebra. You know, ah, uh, okay, they okay. And they literally kind of said, you know, and we have guys in there, and we want to bring girls in. Ah, uh, well, you know that. Okay, oh. now the so, a lot of the whole process of the black album is starting to make them a little more sense now. So, yeah, so and you, so so the and the thing is, is what they wanted. You know, they had never gotten the radio, right? right yeah, really, yeah. they radio even with one they didn't get on the radio and so they i guess because of the the albums that i did uh they thought that i guess they thought about it and then they went well let's go talk to them okay but there's a funny story when they came so we listened and we went and had dinner before they went back so we're at high steakhouse here in vancouver and we're all sitting around at the table, and you could see the busboy was looking at the table, right? Okay. And so he came over with a, a pad and a pen, right? And he says, Bob, can I have your autograph? Same <laughs> 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 thought it was all about them, right? But it's a, so, can I get your autograph? Sure. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's it's hilarious. That is awesome. Sorry. So when when they're recording the Black Album, they bring you the demos. Are most of the, the songs on the Black Album, uh, do they have the general ideas or were any of those songs kind of created in the studio? No, they had the ideas. Okay. So, and they you wanted, they basically brought me in to make the record sound. They... Really, I was brought in to make it, make the sound of the record what they wanted, like they've always wanted. Like one of the big things with mixing the album, um, uh, you know, we go to mix and I did the usual thing. There's, um, there's a compressor on the SSL console and I used to, just like Bob Clearmount and everybody else, we hit that compressor. And that was kind of the sound of the 80s and into the 90s. Right. When we got SSLs, all of a sudden records really had a lot of punch and stuff. So we used that. It was a bit of a crutch, to be quite honest. Um, so we did the first mix, and James says, you got to take all the compression off the guitars. And I said, well, this is what I do. And he says, well, sorry, no compression. I'm going like, fuck. They left. <laughs> it just so happened that I was at in Henson. And Henson had a 6,000 console, which has three. I'm getting technical. But there's three stereo buttons going to one. Okay. Okay. So it just so happened that SSL had dropped off their new rack bus compressor. So I thought to myself, well, what I'll do is I'll put all the drums in the A bus and the bass, and I'll just have James in the B bus and vocals in the C bus. Never done it ever. <laughs> My workaround. So his guitars could be big with no compression. I could have the drum sound. Once again, I had to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. lucky enough that everything came together. <laughs> I was in wow. a room, but I could do it. So I just went, this is how I got to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's what you do. So you kind of you kind of oversaw 
Metallica, they, they're big changes. I mean, they went through a couple different stages. I mean, they went from being this, this big metal group to being more accessible through the black album being played on the radio to, uh, load and reload being accepted by an alternative crowd to an album like S and M where they bring in orchestration was, was all that planned before going into the studio? No, the, I mean, I know it's a weird question, but no, no, it's, it's actually an interesting question. You see the, the thing is, is like, you know, to this day you have meetings with artists and you talk about, they say, this is what we'd like to do. And, and you say, I can do that. But really, studio albums, albums, most albums I've ever worked on, never sound like that meeting. It, <laughs> uh, what it ends up sounding like is a group of people that, you know, either there's a clear vision from a band like Metallica. And in my case, it was the perfect time for me to be with a band like that. Mm-hmm. Timing. You know what I mean? And it becomes what it is. Like, there was no plan. There, there was basic plans, like they wanted to sound as big as they thought they could. But they bought into what I did, and I bought into what they did. Everything that I didn't understand that they did, I was learning. I was, like I said, I was learning. You know, to be quite honest, I'd say about when I, after I did a couple of Buble albums, I kind of went, I think, I think I'm a pretty good producer. <laughs> I think I, no, and, and I'm, being, I'm, oh, wow. I'm being very true. Like I, I finally went, I'm comfortable. I can do this. Okay. You know, like I can, yeah. I can basically go in any studio and do good. You know, right. it doesn't, mm-hmm. what kind of music, because mm-hmm. I'm a lover of music. It's not just one thing. And if you noticed, I didn't really do a whole pile of metal bands after Metallica. Right. That's right. After you do Metallica, what are you going to do? <laughs> That wasn't my thing. I mean, to be quite honest, I was not a metal guy. And I think that's part of the reason why it worked. Well, I'll be honest you know? with you. I mean, I like uh, the Black Album was not my favorite album that you've produced. Um, to be quite honest, it's Blue Murder. I love, I love the Blue Murder <laughs> album. Well, I love Blue Murder, too. Yeah. So how? But Blue Murder is different than the Black Album. It's like this is the point. I think it was Jimmy Iovine in the Defiant Ones said, you know, a great producer is ten percent of what the album is, in, and ninety percent is the artist. I mean, you're only as good as the artist, only as good as the songs, and only as good as timeline and stuff. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to be a prophet or anything, but it's like. <laughs> Really, it's very true. You know, actually, my favorite producer, I can go on record to saying my favorite producer is uh, Jimmy Miller. Wow. Okay. Now, what else was he famous for besides the Rolling Stones? Yeah, but why I love him so much is because he didn't change the Stones, but he made them better. And there's not a Jimmy Miller sound. What he did is he just kind of like, magnified everything great about them and helped them. Like, I didn't know he played drums on Wild Horses and Happy and Tumbling Dice. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Charlie, that play, right? Yep. You know, you see, do you know what I mean? So, to me, that is a guy that just 
builds in what's needed. Yeah. And, okay. and they trust him so much that they can do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's other great producers like that, like uh, George Martin. Oh, God, you yeah, know, yeah. Pete Jones. And, yeah, I mean, the list goes on. But right now and for quite a while, it's it's been Jimmy Miller because I listened to those that his catalog with the Stones. And then you go on to like he he produced uh, 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 Blind Faith, which is not credited on the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's no credit for him. I, he didn't get that. And he did that. Did he? What? Yeah. I didn't know that. And he, I love Blind Faith. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, the Spencer Davis group with Stevie Winwood, right? Yeah. Give me some love. Oh, That's God, Jimmy yeah. Miller. Is it? I see. I didn't oh. know that. Oh, you my. see. Wow. So if you if you go back in the history and you, you look at this guy, you know, I just get shivers talking about it. But, you know, I'm I'm like you. I'm still a big fan. So and when I just listen to the records because I love them. You know, what happened is I never really listen to music in headphones, right? Okay. I just listen to it in my car and, mm-hmm. and kind of work, right? And stereo. But when you have kids and stuff, it, the stereo kind of goes in the closet. Yeah, I know. Have, I know that you know one. what I mean? Yep. I got three. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, it's like, uh, so I, I, we have horses and stuff and I go to the bar and I got to do all the chores and stuff. <laughs> so, I actually started putting music on my iPhone. And so I got all the re-release stuff. I know this is weird, but so I bought the catalogs of the, my favorite band. And like, I never like all this stuff, like trying to figure out Jimmy Page's guitar parts when I was trying to play it as one guitar part and he's playing four. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And like that I thought Keith Richards was playing is actually a combination of two licks because most of their recordings were mono. But when you're separating it, it was just like the stuff is so fucking good. It's yeah. like ridiculous. And when didn't like Exile on Main Street because it sounded so thin and everything. But the reissue is like, it's just like unbelievable how good it is. Yeah, that, that yeah. is a huge difference. It sounds so much better. Oh, my God. I don't know. if Well, I bought it in the day and it was like, I like the songs. Fuck. It distorted and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was awful. Yeah. Oh, said so. Well, that <laughs> you know that that brings me to a question. A question I had for you. What I guess this whole oh. show is about questions for you. So uh, we'll keep going with it. Yeah. Kingdom Come. You know, you mentioned them. They were a great band. Their album was was really good, and they didn't really hit. I mean, they. I, I remember one one track, and then they kind of disappeared and they were, they, they was, it was just, just told that they were kind of a Zeppelin rip off and stuff. And should they have been bigger? And, and, and it, are Zepp comparisons unfair for bands like kingdom come and, and even new bands like Greta van fleet. Do you think they right. can overcome that Zepp comparison? I mean, <laughs> well, like I really like, Greta Van Fleet, and the guy's got a voice, and sometimes he sounds like Plant. Yeah, but I mean, look at the the Danish TV where they play Led uh, uh, Zeppelin, where Plant's like nineteen. Oh, I've had that on bootleg yeah. forever. Right, that show, right, yep. where he sings, uh, "Babe, I want to leave you." 
and you go like, this kid can sing, the Greta guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it ain't like that. But then, but you know, I, I bought Led Zeppelin one the day it came out at Hudson's Bay in Victoria. Oh, wow. Yeah. Day one, I was there first, as soon as it opened, oh. went down and bought it. The infamous Canadian red label, apparently the, the best sounding pressing, some say. I wish I had that pressing. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, no, 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 that's an, it's, it's, it's just, has there been a, uh, something that you've worked on, uh, in production that you thought should have been a lot bigger, uh, a band that you had, that you, that you worked with that you were kind of surprised that it, it didn't hit bigger than it did. Well, I think I can't really name one. I mean, you talk about blue murder there. I mean, you know, they made a video with pyramids in it, and they wore dinner pants in the video. <laughs> and, Nirvana, and Nirvana just came out. I mean, it could not go any worse, right? Yeah, and the pirate shirts. <laughs> you know, working with them, you know, John Sykes, because uh, when I got to know John Sykes, because the, the uh, Whitesnake album was done at Little Mountain. And okay. they were using uh, Mike Stone, who's a great engineer. But they, after three weeks, they still didn't have a guitar sound. Oh, wow. So Mike Fraser oh, was this thing that over, you know, said, Bob, are you just coming to help us out? Just John would like you to see what you could do. And, you know, I did what I did. Mike knew it. I didn't know why he didn't do it. But because uh, he was my my engineer for many years. Um, but I just did what I did and got him involved. That was the key. I just said, John, I'm going to go out and move the mic and mic around and when I'll stop moving it when you stop playing because you like that sound so I did that with all his cabs and did this room thing and he just went oh my god that's what I heard oh, right man. so then, yeah. we, then it was for life right so mm-hmm. yeah so and then when cool. he White Snake he did Blue Murder and he called me up and he said will you do it and I said yeah because John Sykes is a god to me Oh, he's amazing. And, and Tony Franklin. I, I absolutely yeah. love Tony Franklin's work with Roy Harper and The Firm. It, it's just mind-blowing to me that he can make a bass do what he does. Exactly. It's exactly. incredible. Uh, As a guitar player, though, Sykes is, he's, he's just mind-blowing. Mind oh, yeah. Uh, he, you seen the thing in Rio where he does uh, the solo for like 20 minutes? No, I haven't seen that. Oh, you got to see it. Put John Sykes, uh, uh, what is it? Strangers in the Dark. He's like, he's high. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> After all, it was the 80s. <laughs> but you got to see this. Literally, oh. it's about 60,000 you know, in wow. Rio. <laughs> That's a solo, and it's like, it's just ungodly. I will definitely have to check that out immediately after this interview. <laughs> oh, you got to see it. Incredible. So, you know, and he's there in front of 60,000 with his hair and there's a less ball. And you're going like, fuck, that's what I want to do. Seriously, besides Led Zeppelin, that was one of the albums that, that, that really got me heavy into music. And, and it, it was just, the sound was incredible. The, the, the songwriting was great, but, but, just the entire presence and, and sound of the album was amazing. So I got to thank you for that one. Cause I, I listened to that album straight for like two years. It was amazing. Oh, I wore out a, a couple of cassettes on that. So 
Yeah, it was. It still is. It's still to this day when I put it on, it just fucking blows my mind. Oh god, yeah, and I got the remastered version, and it sounds even better. Yeah. All right, so I know you've worked with a, a huge array of artists. You know, everybody knows that you've worked with Metallica, and some people know you've worked with Kingdom Come and Blue Murder. But you know, your lesser known works, stuff like, as far as I'm concerned, because it took me, I didn't realize that you would work with some of these people until I started doing research for for this interview. Was you worked with Cher, uh, Michael Bublé, um, a whole bunch of of, of people that obviously aren't rock artists how is, do you approach them differently than you would approach a metallica or a, a rock band aerosmith uh blue murder something you know a band like that well i think it, the, the approach always becomes obvious but really the i think you're much like we were talking about jimmy miller it's like the, i look at it you know i'm a song person okay you know I'm a song person and I like records. So it can, you know, that's what it's about to me. So the style of music doesn't really mean a whole lot. You know, it's the thing that happened with Buble was, was uh, we have the same manager, Bruce, and he was working with Foster and Michael had written a song. Uh, everything, you're my everything. You're a falling star. You're the getaway car, you're the lightning. And Foster said it was a piece of shit and wouldn't record it. So Bruce says, We just go in the studio and just record this with Michael. And you know, Michael's going, but he does Metallica. And Bruce says, Well, no, you don't understand. It's that's not the only thing he's done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got great guys to come in and we cut everything. And it was the only song that I did on that record. And it did, it was the single that did well. And so Michael just went, you know, it, it was like, not to pan David, but David's got a thing that he does. And Michael loved it and he did well, but there was a side of him that, well, what about this? You know, okay. and some producers don't want to go, what about this? This is what I know works. Right, right. Right. So by the fact that there was like real musicians in the room. And Michael could go to the guitar player, I want to hear it like this, and a guy could play it for him. And, you know, I use Josh Freeze and all these guys I know. Cool. Do you know what I mean? It was like... Josh is incredible. When, when, when Josh was there, you know, and like if Josh, you know, the Vandals, Nine Inch Nails, blah, blah, blah. Perfect circle. And he's going, want me to play on Buble? And I said, yeah. And he killed it. He killed it. And the, the whole... So, anyway, so that got me into the door, and I did more and more. You know, and now he's he's back with Foster as he's, you know, back with that kind of thing that he has to do. But yeah, there you go. But to me, like when you talk about with share, that's it's like I, I had done something uh, for Richie and John with her. And then she just said, will you do a couple of songs? Okay. And there was this an A&R guy, John Kalodner, who was involved with Sharon Aerosmith and all sorts of people, you know, like the, there was like A and R. There's there's no A and R guys now, but there was A and R guys in from the 30s or whatever. There was guys that that did that kind of work. So a lot of work came from certain guys that knew me, like Derek Shulman is Bon Jovi and uh, uh, and Blue Murder. So in this in this sort of A and R free environment, do you ever find yourself sort of 
A&Ring the artist a little bit in the studio sometimes these days? Well, it's, it's, it's different, you know? Um, I think so. I mean, it's, uh, I think coming from where I came from, it was always like the record company is part of the business end of it. And, and so you have to, there's always that thing of, of, of giving them what they want, because if you don't, they won't work for you. So it's always about giving them the single and realizing that and, and somehow getting that best track, whether you, you, you know, you don't, I've never known anybody that could just make a single. It's always mm-hmm. hard work, writing a whole pile of songs and eventually they land on something that's special. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, in the 80s, you could like, you could, you could, kind of tr- with trickery witchcraft you could kind of make it sound like a hit record and sometimes there were bad songs that sounded good yeah. and, <laughs> you know in the 80s you know because of mtv you could sell a million records kingdom come and did a million app records wow right man that's awesome that's better than i th- that i realized that's fantastic yeah so in talking to a, a few people i know that uh, producers will sometimes do unconventional things to get a sound that they're looking for. I, I, you know, I've heard stories of producers making singers run around the studio six or seven times to get them pissed off and out of breath to get the anger that they're looking for in a vocal. Have you ever had to do anything kind of weird to get a, to get a sound that you want out of an artist? Um, well, I think it's more about the musicians. I mean, with, with vocals, I mean, usually like, the thing is, is that most musicians are scared of the studio. I've been in, I've been in studio for 42 years. So it's not really, it's just, it's like home. Right. It's like my room. Most people don't, aren't in a studio for 42 years. So even like John Sykes, you know, in Rio, he's a God and all the time he's a God. And as soon as you press the tape, he kind of freezes up. Not because he can't play. It's that headspace of, oh, now everybody's going to hear this. Okay. Start, right? Right. So right. Developed over the years where, where you, don't, you don't guide them. You put them in the position where they feel the most comfortable so they can be themselves. So, you know, that's, that's what you do. And I think that's, that's what I've learned. I mean, when I was younger, I was a lot more opinionated about how things done, but... Really, you know, I'm a sum of mistakes. My success is all about all the mistakes I've made in my life. Even as engineering, like, you know, like I told you, I like Queen too. So when I mixed um, uh, Armageddon, the Prism album, I pushed the tape and it was distorting. And when I mastered it, George Marino saved my ass. The master Mm -hmm. genius that he was, right? Okay. Because I heard that Queen pushed it. But they had, or I had a fucking Scully, so <laughs> so I could have been fired really easy. But George saved me, you know. Um, so there's all sorts of things that you learn. Like that was a mistake. I, you know, when you learn, you, you it's like you know. I used to you know work on the kick drum mic, then the snare, and you know, and kind of when I mixed and stuff. And now, you know, like I got to do a mix after this. What? I was just pointing at Jordan. Okay. I was going to see if you had um, any questions for you. <laughs> the, uh, now it's, it, it, it's, it's just, um, 
you kind of unlearn what you've learned is is now I've got a set of what I do that I know work, you know, like I used to over EQ, I used to over compress and now it all backs off. And now I get it to a place where I can do anything with it. Okay. When you first learn, you think you have to like, it's like you have to use every knob and then you, sometimes you do, but I'm just saying you don't, if you do it right. I did work with 311 is a good example of analog. Okay. And they said, well, we always record analog. And I said, my argument is, is like, if you have a need, great microphones and great instruments, you're going to, you're going to love digital because it'll be warm. Okay. A lot of people like digital or analog after digital because the sounds are shitty and they put it on analog and it gets dulled down. And that's, that's not what it's about. Right. It's a plug-in. That's like getting a, a phase pedal or something, right? It's okay. not because it comes back right. Because I learned that earlier. A lot of guys that never use tape, they love tape because it warms it up. But if yeah. you, anyway, the, the 311. So I said, I'm going to record the first song, tape, and digital. Okay. And I, I said, I'll play it back and you tell me which one you like. Hmm. Which one did they like? I'm going to guess digital. Digital. <laughs> freaked out. But oh. to this day, they still now go back to tape. Oh, uh-huh. Their thing, right? Uh, it's a habit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man. Well, I was going to ask something that's kind of related to what you were talking about. Um, what do you find the biggest changes in your, in, your, in your work day, your workflow on an average day in the studio? Say, think back to 1981 compared to 2018 besides having to EQ immediately after recording something. On <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing is, is I felt comfortable, like I said, about five or six years ago after working with Google and, and actually I, I did some work with Van Morrison. I did two tracks with him and I mixed his album, which, oh, wow. Oh, wow. which was, which blew my mind. Um, and I learned a lot with him. So, but the fact is, is like, I was terrified, but then when I was in my comfort zone of being in a studio, I wasn't terrified. Right. You know what I mean? And so when I worked with him, he was confident, like he didn't know me. I just, we, what happened is I up for this album was it's a duets album. So he got, Bublé's band to play. I recorded, mixed it, and he loved the way it sounded. So he said, "Will you do the rest of the record? Mix it, and let's do some songs." Oh, nice. And, um, but yeah, yeah. I guess it, it's. What can I say? I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> when you think back to, like, say, Prism or Loverboy, uh, what does? In your mind, what did your day look like then as compared to, you know, your day, a day in the studio in 2018? What, what's the most startling difference? Well, the, 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 the big difference is back then and for many, many years, probably 20 years, I was always searching. Mm-hmm. You see, like most like the compression I use, the compressors on the knee, really for the first five years, I really didn't. I knew technically what they did. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know how to work them like I do now. Musically, yeah. Musically. I was mm-hmm. just learning. 
you know, same yeah, right. with, like a lot of like all the albums. I mean, I was it was school. That's how that's the best school, not yeah schools. But that was the best school is making records constantly. And Van- Vancouver's always seemed like it has a very rich recording culture and has for a very long time. Why is that? I mean, I mean, it, it's different than Toronto and, and, and many great records made in Toronto, of course, and good studios. It seems that Vancouver got the head start as far as Canadian cities and sort of has run the longest as far as like being a very active recording place. The guys that came to Little Mountain, the engineers were Toronto engineers. Okay. They were t- taught by English engineers. So um they moved from toronto out to little mountain and and stuff but um i would really i mean we were blessed in vancouver toronto has always been the center of the music business um and the west coast thing happened because just there was a a lot of talent emerged at the same time and Mm -hmm. and in, in terms of little mountain nothing was planned but it it just it's really um, it's a lot of work and we had this wonderful man that who was the technical director, John Vitalsic. And then, uh, really that line from little mountain has moved to warehouse little mountain. Right. It's got mm-hmm. same sort of same equipment, but mm-hmm. really that the lineage of the people that actually make it all work, um, has come to the warehouse and Brian built this. Thank God he built this. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm here all the time because it is the best. I've worked everywhere, and this is the best studio in the world. Wow. And it's just not just the equipment, it's the people. And it's what, mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't make money off this. He did this for the mm-hmm. Uber. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. This is not making him money. It's because, you know, he, because he's into it. He loves to make music, and this is good for the community. You know, amazing. Yep. Well, you mentioned that you're you're most at home in the studio, but for a, a few years you kind of you played bass for Metallica. Was that a little bit out of your comfort zone? Did that that give you any kind of? And I, I hate to be kind of goofy and use the name of the show, but did, did it give you any performance anxiety having to get out there on the stage with you know Lars, James, and Kirk? Well, not really. There's a <laughs> There's a, always a couple of moments, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, if we had time, I'd tell you a little more. The, let's put it that way. The, the, the film itself is two and a half hours in two and a half years. Oh, some kind of monster? Yeah. And you have to put a story together. Right. First of all, first of all, Phil, the, the basically saved, the, saved Metallica. They're a band because he was there. Okay. He's not afraid that. And he saved all their lives in terms of their marriages, in terms of he, he, he was worth every penny they paid. Let's put it that way. You know, we had therapy probably summed up probably about five days a week for two years. Group therapy. All of us. Now, the thing is, to be quite honest, it wasn't at that point. I'd worked with them for like 13 years. and. You know, we all came to the place. It probably we shouldn't have done that, but I mean, 
Jason quit the band. And oh. I had, he was kind of fragmented from the band when we did I Disappear for the uh, Mission Impossible thing. Okay. So he didn't show up when we were doing pre-post, so I just played bass. Now, when Jason finally left, they, they were so broken that they just, they said, we can't bring somebody up. Will you just bass? They knew that I did that. And, you know, basically, you know, even J- Jason changed the way he was playing. When I came to like, like the black album, Jason played the guitar part. Everybody just played the same riff, right? Right. It was still what I would consider like the bass never acknowledged the kick drum, so to speak. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I, and, you know, so, I kind of brought that to Jason's attention, right? And we worked on it. So there's counter things on the Black Album. It's subtle, but, you know, and then, anyway. The point is, is that you don't have to necessarily have the trust of a bass player to play with the band. So what I did is I look at it, I looked at playing parts as a producer, which, mm-hmm. you know, I play producer bass. i don't know how to you know somebody has to get thrown under the bus when something like that happens somebody's gotta gotta be yeah somebody's gotta be taken to slaughter right (laughs) well to be honest i changed anything because the the thing is is like sometimes you know you're immersed in in just helping people yeah you know because it was fucked up Make it, no mistake. Well, it came across it, that way. And it was fucked up. It was really fucked up. Um, but like I said, I wouldn't change anything, you know. I'll tell you. Sorry. If you want to talk about St. Anger. So yeah. I've had the shit kicked out of me over St. Anger, but thank God they did the Lou Reed album. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> saw uh, Jimmy Page is, is someone that I know now, which is like, come on. Oh, that's oh. insane. Oh. Yeah, oh. like, okay, so so when it might get loud in Toronto, is I was what I was worried, it might have been the hip. And it might get loud uh, was released, and there was a release party. So Jimmy was there, and the Metallica people were there because they managed Jimmy at oh, the time. Okay. So they said, the management said, you're here. We heard you're here. Come down to the party. So I went down. I was talking to uh, uh, Cliff Bernstein. And Jimmy comes by. And he goes, Bob, so great to see you. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Wow. God. While we're talking, Jack White comes over and says, are you Bob Rock? And I said, yeah, Jack, blah, blah, blah. He says, I love the St. Anger album. Ah, amazing. Awesome. Wow. And then he left. And he left. <laughs> <laughs> that's it right? <laughs> about a year later uh, I was at the Sunset Marquee and he was eating breakfast with some people and I didn't want to bother him this guy I had a meeting with stopped at Jimmy's table and said you know hi Jimmy I'm here with Bob Rock and he got up and he says Bob's here he walked over to me and we started talking and he says I love the St. Andrew album so two people loved it. Wow. Wow. Two wow. huge yeah, people. And those two. They were the right people. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. It found its audience, finally. That's awesome. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, my God. And then, actually, I was in, um, in uh, Sweden uh, this year, and I went to Iceland. 
uh, as well. But I was in Sweden, and a lot of people kind of recognized me, and every one of them loves Saint Anger. So go figure. See, look at that. So I, I just, I just don't think they. I think they just judged it on what it was rather than the complaints. Mm-hmm. When okay. when I yeah. got Zeppelin three as a Led Zeppelin fan, the immigrant song is what I heard first, and then I bought the record and I threw it across the floor. Wow! Because oh. they changed. Remember, it's a very acoustic album. Yes, it is. So it's mm-hmm. a, it blasphemy, right? Right. As a, Betrayal. So I get all the people that you know. I get this. I understand that. Yeah. Nobody mm-hmm. likes change, right? Yeah, and unfortunately, that's been leveled on you for for the Black album for Load Reload. That's and I mean it's. And like you said, it, it, that's more of the direction the band seem to be going. You you can't tell them exactly what to do. They come in with ideas, and you help them get the sound that they want. That's it. So. There's a reason why the Black Album did well, not just because of the Sonics and, and stuff, but if you look at it, they're probably they're James's most personal lyrics. Right. Right. Yep. He hasn't written an album that's that's person, and he didn't before that. That's true. That album. Was all the songs are very personal. That's very and true. That's why people relate to it. That's why everybody bought it. I was in the last year of high school, and that was the first time I saw females listening to Metallica. It was a distinct change from Injustice to that to the Black Album. And the Black yeah, Tour, the Black Tour was the very first time I'd saw I had seen Metallica live. I saw them in Rochester, New York, when I was in college. So, so. Well, I, I saw Injustice, and it was. It was just bludgeoning. It was, uh, and it was a dude fest for sure. But it was, it was amazing. I'd never seen that kind of power over an audience. It was, it was unreal. Still is. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always. Yep. So I'm very proud of what I did with them. Well, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, you should be because it's it, it's it's a huge album. It's one of the best selling albums of all time. So, but speaking of songwriting, now I. Yeah. I know you're doing a, a a project with a friend of mine, Cheami Dorval. Yeah, that's Roach, right? Can you tell me a little bit about that? How's that going, and and what the focus is on that? What had happened is um, when I was in Sweden, I worked uh, making a drum library for tune tracks. Okay, I saw that. Okay, so when we were doing the drum library here, she's good friends of Matthias, the main guy at tune tracks. Right. So came by the studio and and uh, Matthias said she's blah 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 met her and Matthias says you have you ever heard her and I, I saw her videos and and uh, he says do you have any material and I've got a I've got a lot of material that you know you don't stop writing even though I don't work with Paul he doesn't want to do it anymore so I just you don't stop writing right so I continue to write. And what I did, when I wrote with Paul, I put together tracks, okay? So what, we were in the room together writing it. I actually put together a whole track. That's what I was sent it, and he would write it. And if he liked it, he finished it, right? Okay. So basically, with Shay, he said, why don't you send a couple of your, your tracks? He heard them, and he said, send them to Shay. And I sent, sent her this one track, and she wrote Blood Red Sun, which is the first song we wrote together. And to be quite honest, I was stunned at what I got back. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And and further, and to be quite honest, so what we've, all we've done is, is it's just like, it's almost, it's just a musical friendship, you know, like 
because it, you know what, you know, she works with all sorts of people. Right. And I guess whatever I do, it inspired to write a song. So now we've got, I've got this, I can tell you that we've got this one great with Shay and Gord Downey doing a duet. Oh, wow. Wow. That, oh, I can't wait to hear that. Yeah. So is there a, a timeline on when this stuff is going to be completed, you think? Um, released? Well, we just finished, uh, we just finished another, uh, she sang it yesterday. Oh, um, wow. This is number seven now. We were just going to do three, and then it's like, I don't know, we're just, there's no plan. But I think um, probably next year. Okay. It seems like a long way away, but it goes by real quick. It does. <laughs> I Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, and I know that's, I mean, that pretty much wraps it up for me. Jordan, jump in with anything that you've got. I would be remiss if I didn't say hello from, um, from Mary Catherine Harris. I spoke with her today and she said hello. She used to work at Little Mountain. Yeah. In the early 80s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She says hello. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hello back. Great. Um, I mean, I have, I have one last random question, which is, um, Mark, you may not know, but, um, or you probably do if you know enough about Canadian music. Um, uh, in We Are the World times, in Canada, we had uh, Tears Are Not Enough. And Bob, I believe you co-wrote with with the rest of the gang on that one? Is that true? Um, well, basically, this is, this is a good foster story. Um, <laughs> you, have, you have several. And, and uh, he, David Foster recorded one of the Pale as albums, too, right? Well, he did one album that basically broke up the band. And, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did break up the band. It was yeah, called yeah. All Hide in the Pales, if you remember correctly. I do, yeah. Uh, anyway, it was... Basically, when that happened, Quincy phoned and, and he saw, and he just said, do you guys have an idea? And we said, yeah, we've got this song called Tears Are Not, Not Enough. And he played it and he goes, I like the title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Were you there for the, for the, like, the vocal session where everyone no, sang their there. parts and stuff? Okay. I had to work, thank God. <laughs> but, oh. I always wondered, like, because Neil Young looks so out of it in the video. I was wondering what kind of shape he showed up in. <laughs> oh, yeah. God. I don't know. Probably but it There you go. Amazing. And another phone call, Herb Albert, you know, we were signed to A&M Records, right? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Herb Albert phoned the second day we were there. And so Foster said, oh, her brother's on the phone. Okay, oh, guys, come on over. I'll put you on speakerphone. And hi, uh, Foster goes, hi, Herb. I'm sitting here with the Palos. And he goes, who? Oh. <laughs> oh, fuck. And then he picks up the phone. and Who? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Bob, thank you so much for coming on with us. I know we've taken up a whole hell of a lot of your evening tonight. So. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. We didn't even get to David Lee Roth, but we'll do that some other time. Yeah. Oh, that was fun. Uh, unless, of course, you've it got any David like Lee Roth stuff you want to you, you talk about. 
<laughs> later day. All right. But I will, yes. I had a lot of fun and he's an amazing man. Yeah. Yeah. He really is. I'm not kidding you. I love that last record too. As a guy we had, like, we just had the best time and he's a character. Well, he's the ultimate front yeah. man. He's uh, incredible. When I will tell you, he brought the demos and we, he was staying at the Four Seasons and I walked into the room and there was just a ghetto blaster and him, right? Right. So pressed, put the tape in, press play, and he sang every song in front of me doing his shit. <laughs> wow, I love it. <laughs> I didn't know if the songs were good, but I just went, I'm in. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, I mean, hey, Bob, do you do, are you on social media at all? No. Okay. So everybody just keep an eye out for, for stuff that Bob Rock produces and, and, and works on. Cause it's, it's, it's going to be good. You know, it's going to be good. It, all this, his stuff, you know, it, anything that comes out with Bob Rock, listen to it. Um, well, thank you so much for your time tonight. We really do appreciate you coming on and, and spending a, a, yes. some time with us. Okay. Take it easy guys. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.